Well, happy Sunday to you. About 2,000 years ago, Jesus stood on a hillside after his perfect life and his sacrificial death and his triumphant resurrection. And on that hillside, he declared all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples among all nations. Make disciples among all nations. How? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them. To observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is Jesus's vision for us. This is Jesus's vision, not just for us in this room, but this is Jesus's vision for his disciples around the world and across the ages. And today we get to participate in that vision through baptizing four individuals who have discovered and are testifying to new life in Jesus Christ. And we participate in Jesus' vision today by listening and by learning, by continuing on in the journey. The mission of making disciples is not only about getting people into the tank. Are you tracking with me? According to what Jesus himself says in the Great Commission, making disciples is not just about getting people to the point of conversion. It's about teaching them to observe everything that Jesus commanded in every aspect of life, in every culture that we find ourselves living in. And it's to that kind of dimension of discipleship and learning to follow Jesus in every aspect of life, in whatever culture we may find ourselves in, It's to that aspect of the Christian life that we're going to be listening in as we pay attention to another line. We're moving very slowly through 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're doing a sermon series through this book. And here in chapter 5, we're moving very slowly through these instructions for discipleship. Today we'll hear an instruction specifically about this, uh, this aspect of The fruit of the Spirit, which is called goodness. In one of Paul's other letters, the Apostle Paul says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, goodness. And I could imagine somebody hearing all of that and saying, well, that sounds really sweet. Who wouldn't want love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness? Who wouldn't want more of that? That all sounds really sweet. Someone will say, but you don't know the world that I live in. That all sounds really sweet. But what about the difficult people? That I know and that I have to deal with. Being peaceful and kind and gentle and good. That sounds nice, but you don't know my family. It all sounds nice, but you don't know the other kids at my school. It all sounds nice, but you don't realize how hostile my workplace is against Christianity. Love, patience, kindness, goodness. That all sounds nice, but you haven't met my neighbors on my block. Love, 
patience, kindness, goodness, that all sounds nice, but there are some bad people around us. Love, patience, kindness, goodness, that all sounds nice, but you don't realize how much, you don't realize how difficult it is to follow Jesus here in this city that we live in. Love, patience, kindness, goodness, that all sounds nice, and I'm happy to do that with 90 or 95% of the people here in this room today. But you don't realize how difficult those other 5% are, someone is thinking. Patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness. It all sounds nice, but what about all of the difficult people? Today we're listening in to just one line of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're learning how to live as disciples of Jesus in a world full of difficult people. Keep in mind, by the way, that the congregation that received this letter of 1 Thessalonians, that congregation was very familiar with difficult people. Only about a year before they received this letter, some of the Jewish people in their city and some of the Greek people in their city allied together in order to take Jason, one of the Christians, to court. They took Jason to court simply because he was associated with the missionary team of Paul and Silas and Timothy. See, these believers knew real opposition, like getting taken to court for being a Christian. They knew real opposition from those outside the church. And while the church in Thessalonica sounds way more unified than, say, the divided church in Corinth... Paul nonetheless writes over and over about their need for more love. Which is to say there's love in the church, but there's a need for more of it in the congregation, right? And in this specific context, writing to a church facing real opposition from outside of the church and to this congregation with a need for greater love and unity within the church... This missionary team writes these directions for living as disciples of Jesus in a world full of people who are difficult. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good. To one another and to everyone. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. May God bless the reading of his word today. Two directions here that we see in this brief verse, two directions for living as disciples of Jesus in a world full of difficult people. The first direction is this, don't repay evil for evil. This direction is rooted in what our Lord Jesus himself taught in the Sermon on the Mount, right? 
You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But now I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. A little further down in the context there in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, our Lord Jesus taught, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so Jesus is teaching continued. We get the point, right? If you experience evil or wrong from difficult people around you, which the unfortunate implication of Jesus' teaching is as disciples, sometimes we will. Sometimes we will experience evil. Sometimes we will experience wrong from difficult people around us. But when we experience that, if you experience that, don't repay evil in exchange for evil. The point is straightforward enough. The problem for application, I think, is this. I don't usually think of myself as a very vengeful person. Yeah? I think of a vengeful person maybe more like the famous Inigo Montoya from the movie The Princess Bride. My name is Inigo Montoya. You want to say it with me, don't you? You can if you like. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. <laughs> you, <laughs> we're going to become liturgical here if we're not careful. This is, you guys are great. And you say you can't memorize scripture. I, was that me? I'm not, I'm just joking. You guys are like, you're acting like I'm being mean to you. Okay, so Inigo Montoya, back to that thing, right? So Inigo Montoya suffers evil from a real villain who kills his father. And then what does he do? He spends the next 20 years of his life mastering the art of sword fighting. Why? So that one day he can drive a blade through the belly of the guy who killed his father, right? He spends 20 years of his life seeking revenge with a sword. And I I think about this issue of repaying evil for evil. And I'm like, I don't even own a sword. I'm cool. I've never once tried to learn the art of sword play. I've had some difficult interactions with people before. But listen, in every staff meeting I've been at, in the most difficult staff meeting, and I have some of my coworkers are here in this room, right? Because, and I'm telling you the truth, in the most tense and frustrated moments, I've never wanted to drive a sword through one of my coworkers' bellies. So good news, you can know, this is the honest truth. I've never wanted to do, and so I just think, like, I'm not a very vengeful person, right? I'm not out, I'm not gonna spend 20 years of my life learning sword play so that I can drive a blade through somebody else, right? I'm not a very vengeful person, I probably don't need to pay attention to this repaying evil for evil business, right? But then this week, however, I was reading a very old Christian book, maybe written about 1700 years ago or something like that, and it included an ancient Christian analysis of what retaliation is 
and how retaliation works in the human soul. And in this very ancient Christian analysis of how retaliation works, the author points out that retaliation begins in the heart. It doesn't begin with swords. It begins in the heart and it grows up out of the heart to our face, to our facial expressions, the resentments and the desire to repay evil for evil that we feel in our heart sometimes grows up and it shows in the expressions on our face. And sometimes it not only shows in the expression on our face, but then it comes out in words that we speak, words of revenge And sometimes those words give way even further to actual actions of revenge. And the reason that that's helpful for me to realize this kind of analysis of retaliation, this anatomy of what retaliation is like, is that it helps me to realize that even if I'm not carrying around a sword trying to kill somebody, there still might be seeds of that desire to repay evil for evil at work in my life. If you're not carrying around a sword trying to kill somebody, good. But are you using your words toward difficult people in your workplace? Are you using your words like weapons that cut deep to places a sword couldn't reach? Maybe for some of you, you're actually pretty good at not blurting out the vengeful words, good. But do you think people in your household can see the anger written all over the expression on your face sometimes? You're getting better at not looking angry, that's good. But how's your heart doing toward the difficult people in your church family? Guard your heart with all vigilance, the Proverbs teach us. For from your heart will flow the springs of life. And this is where this ancient Christian analysis helps me. It helps me to realize that even if I'm not carrying around a sword looking for one person to murder, it helps me realize that there can be a murderous impulse living within. A murderous impulse that says if you've wronged me, then that justifies this seething anger toward you in my heart. And Maybe that justifies a little bit of an expression. No, maybe that justifies a few words. Maybe that would even justify a few actions. This is where this ancient Christian analysis helps me. It helps me to realize that I need to deal with this issue of anger and bitterness here. In my own soul, in my own heart, in my own life. I wonder about you. My goal is not to burden anybody with guilt today. But I do want to tell you about the freedom that can be found through repentance. The freedom that can be found by setting down not just a literal weapon. Okay, we showed up, I hope, without swords, right? But do you tend to use your words as weapons? There is freedom, I'm telling you. There is freedom in setting aside that habit of using your words as weapons. And I'm bringing this up because there's freedom to be found 
when we set aside this freedom that we feel, this freedom that we feel to use the looks on our face, be they icy or seething, to cut deep into other people's hearts. There's freedom in just setting that aside and saying, before the Lord, I'm done with that. There's freedom when we come before God and we confess openly and honestly the resentments that we feel toward other people in our family, toward other people in our workplace, toward other people in our neighborhood, toward other people in our church family. Even those people that you're thinking about now, right? There's freedom when we take that before the Lord and we just lay that at the foot of the cross and we acknowledge openly and honestly, I have been resentful. Would you forgive me and would you help me move forward? There's freedom in that. And this passage, as it gives us this simple and clear direction, do not repay evil for evil, it's leading us on a path toward freedom. Now I want to pause very, very briefly at this point to say that sometimes people do misuse this passage or other passages like it. To say that since the passage teaches that you shouldn't repay evil for evil, then you shouldn't get the authorities involved if somebody does something that's illegal or something along those lines. Sometimes we use this verse to keep people from seeking honest and right kinds of protection. I'd only remind you, uh, where is Paul writing this letter from? He's no longer in the city of Thessalonica. Why? Because when Jason was dragged off into court, the missionary team said it seems wise for us to leave for the sake of our own safety and for the sake, presumably, of the safety of those Christians here. You see, not repaying evil for evil doesn't forbid us from seeking safety in appropriate ways. Other times in the book of Acts or other times Paul will use his citizenship rights and he'll appeal to a court process to say there's due process that should happen in this issue. Paul himself, one of the authors, is doing that, right? And so not repaying evil for evil doesn't mean avoiding proper authorities, But it does mean something. And in fact, in my experience, it means something far deeper than we usually recognize. It targets the anger, the resentments that we feel in our hearts toward others. Don't repay evil for evil, this passage teaches us. But then it gives us a second direction for living in a world full of difficult people. It says not only to avoid repaying evil for evil, but kind of as the other side of the coin, right? There's kind of two sides to this coin. On the one side of the coin, don't repay evil for evil. The second direction is the other side of the coin. Instead of seeking to repay evil for evil, what should we do? We should seek to do good And look with me again at verse 15 to who we should seek to do good to. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another in the congregation. But is that the limit of it? No. And to everyone. And you hear how this rings in that church in Thessalonica, right? Y'all got some people that you need to learn to love more? That can be kind of a euphemistic way of saying, you got some people you're struggling with a little bit? Do good to them. Replace that impulse to repay evil for evil with an impulse to say, how can I seek 
to show the goodness of God to that person instead. And you hear how this resonates in that congregation in Thessalonica. Jason's probably there. Remembering that mob of people that showed up to take him to court on unjust charges. And the missionary team is writing back and saying, Jason, don't repay anybody evil for evil. But seek to do good to one another and even to them. To all. Once again, at this stage, Inigo Montoya has something to teach us, believe it or not. (laughs) In the closing scene of The Princess Bride, Inigo Montoya is standing in the window of the castle tower, kind of looking down at what's going on below, right? His quest for revenge is complete and it's behind him. And he says something that I think is kind of profound. It's at least profound given how silly and ridiculous most of the film is, right? But for a silly and ridiculous film, he says something rather profound. He says, I've been in the revenge business so long, now that it's over, I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. There's a warning in that. Some of us keep harboring or hanging on to this sense of resentment. Maybe you don't want to listen to the words of Scripture. Maybe you'll at least listen to the testimony of Inigo Montoya. Keep running down that road far enough and it turns out to be an awfully empty path. Keep running down that road far enough and even if you find some degree of the vengeance you're seeking, it will still leave you with this vast, massive emptiness saying, now I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. And so the Apostle Paul, understanding people perhaps even more deeply than the Princess Bride, tells us not only to give up our pursuit of revenge, see to it that you don't repay evil for evil, but God in His kindness, in His Word, also gives us something to do with the rest of our lives. Instead of seeking evil for other people, instead of seeking revenge, here's something that you can spend your life on as a follower of Jesus that's actually worth spending your life on. Seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This is a mission that is worth living for. Seek To do good to one another and to everyone. You see, the agenda is this. Instead of mirroring the rage that is all around us, disciples of Jesus are called to amplify the goodness of God. Instead of just mirroring the rage that we hear, that we see, that we feel all around us, disciples of Jesus are called to not just mirror that rage, but to amplify something different, to spend our lives amplifying something better, to spend our lives amplifying the goodness of God, which has been revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. So maybe it's worth pausing and thinking even about this upcoming week. How can you do good to someone who wouldn't expect it from you this week?
I don't mean just a ploy like, I'll buy you lunch if you read my evangelistic tract. That kind of thing could make someone feel like they're just a project in your life, right? I mean, showing real kindness, real blessing, really praying for someone with a heart of goodwill towards someone who assumes that you're there to just pick a fight with them. Maybe there's a neighbor or a coworker or a family member. Maybe there's a long-lost friend that you haven't been in touch with in way too long. And maybe in the freedom that we find at the cross of Jesus Christ as you lay down weapons of actions or weapons of words or weapons of expressions or weapons within, as we lay down those weapons, we not only find the freedom from the slavery to that lifestyle, we also find freedom for something better. A freedom to go and start something new. Instead of continuing the cycle, evil comes this way and evil goes back that way, which makes more evil come this way, which makes more evil go that way. What if we create a new story? Instead of handing back evil, we show up and maybe it starts with a word of apology. I'm sorry for the way that I acted last week. Maybe it starts with a simple text message. I've been thinking about you. I'm sorry it's been so long. Maybe it starts with a word of real encouragement. I appreciate this about you. Maybe it starts with a real offer to just sit down and eat a meal together and hear more of their story. Maybe it's just a cup of coffee. Maybe it's just showing up without a hurry. How can you show kindness even this week to someone who wouldn't expect it? See, Paul didn't, re- Paul didn't think of his ministry as raising up a generation of people to fight against the rest of the city around them. Instead, Paul thought of his mission as raising up a generation in the church, a generation who was prepared to do good to each and every individual they would come into contact with in the name of their good shepherd, Jesus Christ. How do we move in that direction, though? How do we kind of move from the vengeful feelings, whether it's toward a three-year-old or whether it's toward your boss, How do we move from those vengeful feelings to actually being ready to take a step to show goodness, to show kindness to somebody who wouldn't expect it? I want to suggest to you uh, maybe three motivating truths, three theological ideas that I think can help us get this in gear and start moving forward. And the first theological idea, the first motivating truth is this. I'm just gathering these from other places in Scripture for the sake of being helpful, I hope. But one of the motivating truths is this. Vengeance belongs to the Lord and not to you. This sounds like a really heavy idea, but I'm telling you there is freedom in understanding this idea, brothers and sisters. There is freedom in it. Vengeance belongs to the Lord and not... To you. This is how Paul wrote in one of his other letters about this issue. Romans chapter 12 verse 19. Beloved, 
Never avenge yourselves, but leave that to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. This is really important because when we face evil or wrongs that are done to us, and especially when those evils or wrongs are not just in like the shallow end of the pool, but are in the deeper end of the pool. When we experience real wrongs, real opposition, real evil, there is something in us that says it wouldn't be right for that to go unaddressed. And the normal human impulse with that idea that says it wouldn't be right for that to go and address is to say, therefore, I'm going to take vengeance into my own hands and I'm going to address it. But at best, at the very best, we only end up in the shoes of Inigo Montoya at that point. Often it doesn't even work out that well, does it? But God's word gives us this profound truth that meets us in the very depths of our fallen world experience. And it says there is such a thing as evil that needs to be dealt with. There is such a thing as evil that should not go unaddressed. But the Lord says, I've got it. The Lord says the responsibility to address those wrongs Belongs to me, not to you. And so this is a first theological truth which leads us in the freedom to let go of those resentments. To let go of the desire to pursue revenge. The first theological truth that I find helps me is just realizing if real wrong has been committed, the Lord has pledged to do something about it. That's a first theological truth. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. A second theological and motivating truth is this. People are made in God's image, even them. (laughs) Whoever the them is for you. Those people who post the most annoying memes on Facebook. Even they. are, Are you like, I believe this. Do you though? Like even they are made in God's image. And what happens when we begin to believe that? What happens is we are freed up to begin showing goodness to real people in this real world that we live in. Uh, Let's let John Calvin have a word on this matter. Some of us might be like, well, what about the doctrine of depravity and sin? And like, don't people deserve stuff? John Calvin is the dude for depravity and sin and what people deserve, right? He's kind of, he's that dude. But listen to how John Calvin teaches in the Institutes about this concept that we're learning about here in 1 Thessalonians 5.15. John Calvin says, the Lord demands that we do good to all without exception even though most people are unworthy if we judge them on their merits. Now let that sink in. In other words, recognizing the image of God in people which is worthy of honor, which is worthy of blessing, which is worthy of loving, which is worthy of showing goodness to, is not a matter of saying how good is good enough. 
John Calvin leads us to realize the Lord demands we do good, even though most people are unworthy if we judge them on their own merits. Scripture, however, forestalls us or holds us back. It warns us to consider the image of God, which is in all of us and which deserves all our respect and affection. This is the only way we can attain to what is not only difficult for human nature, but totally abhorrent to it often, namely loving those who hate us, repaying evil with good and praying for those who speak ill of us. So what is it that John Calvin is teaching us will kind of unlock this gateway and help us to begin moving forward. Even if people, if judged by their own merits, just don't deserve our kindness. For one thing, we can realize vengeance belongs to the Lord, not to me. For another thing, we can realize that people are made in God's image. Even they are. Even she is. Even he is. And then there's a third theological truth I want to set in front of us here. A third motivating truth which can empower us, which can kind of help the gears of the story of redemption to get connected in the details of our hearts. And that third motivating truth is this. It's that Christ also suffered. Christ also suffered as both our substitute and our example. And if we lose either of those, Christ as substitute or Christ as example, listen, we lose something really, really important. I think some people want to minimize the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. And some people want to talk about the cross as if it is only an example, just a a good story about a good person doing good things. And if somebody says that, we need to, in very clear and strong terms, show them from the Scriptures and speak to them from our hearts and say, we are desperately missing something of the absolute highest level of importance if we don't have a substitute who died in our place to bring us back to God. If we don't have Christ as our substitute, we are missing something absolutely and eternally significant. But sometimes those of us who know very well that Christ gave himself for our sins. Sometimes we minimize the example side of Jesus. Sometimes we shrug our shoulders and say Christ died for our sins. So it doesn't so much matter how I respond to people. But that's not the way that God's own word treats the issue, right? Jesus is presented to us as nothing less than our substitute, but he's presented to us also as an example. Listen, for example, to Peter in the New Testament. First Peter chapter two, verse 20, teaching us how to get the gears together. He's teaching us how to move forward in showing good to people who are opposed to us. And it sounds like this. But if you do good, there's that issue of goodness. You suffer for it and you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. There it is in Scripture. 
We're meant to pattern our lives after Jesus. Following Him is not just trusting Him, it's following Him. It's actually following in His ways. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. Now we're not going to do that perfectly. I haven't ever accomplished that perfectly. The blood of Christ is still needed to cover our sins every single week. And praise God, His blood is enough every single week and every single day. But here's the example that he set for us. The path that we are called to follow. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled by others, he did not revile. Reviling is just using sharp words that are meant to cut. When people used sharp words meant to cut, he did not use sharp words meant to cut in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Which is to say, when other people acted in a menacing way toward him, he didn't act in a menacing way back toward them. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Praise his name so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep. But you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, here's the thing. As we bring our souls to the truth of who God is and all that he's done for us in Jesus Christ. It kind of the gears of the story of redemption that kind of reach down into our hearts and they start to unlock something. They start to budge something. They start to move something out of those places where we have just been locked and cemented in this place of bitterness for years. The blood of Jesus Christ, the coming justice of God, the clear teaching of his word, the truth about who other people are, the the cemented feelings that we have toward other people. It just kind of starts to break apart and something starts to move us away from this patterned habit that says, if I've experienced wrong from others, I deserve to wrong them in return. And it moves us not only to set aside the swords. It moves us instead to move toward others in love, in gentleness, in kindness, seeking to do good. You see, the agenda that God has given us as disciples of Jesus In a world full of difficult people, the agenda is this. Instead of mirroring the rage of the world around us, let's make it our aim this week and until we see Jesus face to face. Let's make it our aim to amplify the goodness of our good shepherd, Jesus Christ. We're going to...
take the Lord's Supper together in just a moment. And so I want to invite those who are going to be serving the elements of the Lord's Supper to come over here. 